Hey everyone, and welcome to the season premiere of We Need to Talk. We took a few weeks off to properly get rid of the dumpster fire that was 2020, and now we are back heading into our fourth season, and I truly could not think of a better person to have on the first episode back. Joining me today is someone whose work I admire, whose voice I always appreciate hearing, whether it's about complex social issues, the latest young adult television show, or her deep love for Carly Rae Jepsen, host and songwriter Grace Semler-Baldridge. Grace, thanks for joining me. Wow, that is by far my favorite intro I've ever had. Oh my gosh. I, I had to throw those in. It's so funny because I love when you and your wife are talking about like young adult television or movies. And I was like, oh my God, I thought I was alone. So I was so glad I met you and like started following you and everything because I truly thought I was the only person that had an obsession with young adult stuff. So thank no, you. No, no. It's like, we're so sad because we just finished The Wilds. I don't know if you saw. Okay, I, so finish it. I actually partnered with Amazon to promote it and I got to see the first two episodes <laughs> you're like blown away right now and I yeah I saw the first two episodes I know oh my gosh yeah, that's so cool but it's so good I haven't finished it because child I have a baby obviously and you've seen her she's all over the place but um it's fantastic I really really yes, love it Thank you. Thank you. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's so much that I want to, like, just, I want to intro you. <laughs> like, everything I love about you. But, no, I love, I love young adult stuff, and Lizzie and I have been so sad. Every, whenever we finish a show, that's the problem with binging in quarantine, because you For plow sure. through shows so yeah. fast. Yeah. Now here I am just left to my own devices with my <laughs> thoughts. Did you you watched Pretty Little Liars, didn't you? Oh okay. yes. Okay. Okay. Good. I figured. I figured. I didn't want to assume, but I figured. Have you started Tiny Pretty Things yet? No, but I. Okay. It keeps being advertised to me. Is it good? Girl, you need to watch it. Wait. Okay. So it's about ballet dancers, but there's something sinister. It's like foot? Pretty Little Liars, but in a ballet school. <laughs> it's crazy. Lizzie, <laughs> we have plans tonight. <laughs> It's fantastic. Oh my gosh. I can't, I can't, I love that I just gave you something to talk about. Well, no, we'll, we'll, I'm not kidding you that we will watch it tonight because we, we just were complaining last night. We would just watch YouTube videos, which yeah. is also fine, but we haven't found like another show to like, this hook is your show us because we need, we need, and I say this with love, trash. I get like, it. I need, 100%. You know, 100%. Yeah, like, I don't my, need, my husband doesn't like, get the obsession. Yeah, my husband doesn't get my obsession with wanting to watch trash, but I'm like, you need to release, you know, you need to release. watch something. So yeah. <laughs> anything that's close to being nominated for an Emmy is for me right now, too sophisticated right now. <laughs> I might want it eventually, but right now I want something that's like for the, for a 16 year old. I, oh, I, that. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's the best. Um, but now we're going to get into some serious stuff, but I love that we're connected on, on the young adult stuff. Cause I definitely have felt alone. Um, but let's talking a little bit about you. I mean, you, there's so much that you do that I, I love and you're the host of a docuseries on refinery 29 called state of grace. Um, and I love that it, how it explores, um, basically kind of social justice and human rights um, through the eyes of being a person of faith. Um, yeah. And before, before we get into some of the topics that you cover on that show, um, I want to talk to you just about your personal journey and your story. You were, you were born here, correct? But you were raised was, internationally? Yeah, so I was born in South Carolina, okay. and my dad was uh, a Navy chaplain, and then he also was like a 
uh, associate priest, sort of like an up-and-coming priest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we moved for a while until I was like six or seven to Delaware. And then from Delaware, we moved to Belgium. Gotcha. Where I spent my, f- this is no Hilaria Baldwin. I literally grew up in Belgium <laughs> fully <laughs> until I, I moved here when I moved to the U.S. when I was 18 for university. I love my it. My parents moved to the U.S. when I was night. They moved back to, they live in Kentucky now. We have no we're, we, we're basically, we're a nomadic family. We have gotcha. no other family in Kentucky, but my parents live there. So if I go back to see them, then that's where I would go. But I wouldn't say I'm from Kentucky. I wouldn't say I'm from South Carolina. I wouldn't even really say I'm from Belgium anymore. I don't know where I'm from. I guess I would just, just say. You're all over. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I'm all yeah. over. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's totally fine. I love it. Um, so, but you were raised a Christian, correct? Yeah, my dad is an Episcopal priest. Yeah. So I yeah. was a preacher's kid, grew up in the church, um, but my, my parents have all, were also very uh, open about mm-hmm. things. So okay. I was always allowed to question faith. There, I was not raised in a particularly strict household. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure why that is. My parents are a little bit older. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But they were just very cool about if I didn't want to go to church, What if I didn't want to wear like church clothing, quote unquote church clothing. Mm-hmm. I remember early on, I was little. My dad was like, well, God doesn't care what you wear to church. Mm-hmm. Just come if you want to go. And I would mm-hmm. go in like basketball shorts and stuff. Um, and I, so I was raised in a very Christian, like undeniably Christian. We're mm-hmm. having like, vestry meetings like parishioners are coming through we're doing all that stuff but it was a very open household also and there were also um queer people in our church at the time I love that I didn't even understand that conflict yet I had to move to the U.S. to understand that right so that's that's part of the journey that I want to talk to you about because I mean I love hearing that you were pretty much raised in a very opening and seems like accepting family. So what was your journey like kind of falling into the identity of what was, you know, what we know now is like being a queer Christian. What was that like for you, especially when you came back into the States? Yeah. So once I started coming out to myself, because first you come out to yourself before you come out to other people. So when I was going through the process as a teenager of coming out to myself, what did that mean? I, you know, YouTube had, was recent and I, it's just started coming out. So I would type in like gay Christian into YouTube to see what would come up. And, um, the first videos that would come up were Jackie Hill Perry videos. Mm -hmm. So they were, um, anti-gay videos. Yeah. And it's all very full circle because eventually I would go on to meet Jackie Hill Perry and I do have a fondness for her as well. Um, But those first videos that I found were conflicting and that was very confusing to me because I wasn't ready to come out to my family, but I did know that there were gay people in our church. Right. So I was like, are we just not, are we not talking about the problem? (laughs) Like what is happening? Um, And then when I moved to the U.S., it was, you know, I was like 18, 19 is when I really started to come out more and more. Like I had come out to a few friends privately, but it was really when I was away from the nest, as is the case for a lot of people, that I came into my own identity and really started coming out. And then immediately, I almost like the first year of being out, people would be like, well, are you still a Christian? And I didn't even understand why that question was relevant. And so then I started having to do my own research and I, um, 
I hit a, I hit a few walls. I was really concerned and confused about how my dad's church was teaching this one thing and how we were having queer people openly serve in our church. And mm-hmm. then this other church that seemed also legitimate was saying this totally opposite thing. And it was really confusing. So I kind of chose not to engage with it until my best friend, um, very much a family member to me at that time, rejected me after I asked her to be a bridesmaid, a bridesmaid in my wedding. Mm. It was really only when I received that rejection. And again, I'm so privileged to have been protected from any rejection from a family member until that point. Right. That, that when she rejected me and we, it was her birthday yesterday. And like, I, we haven't talked like it's, it's brutal. It, what, what this does to people and how this yeah. tears apart relationships. It was only then that I was like, I think I need to, go to the source and figure mm. it out. And through that is how State of Grace got started. Gotcha. I love it. I mean, I, I, I've i watched quite a few of the episodes. I think there's 10 episodes out or 11. Something, yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. And one of the ones that really struck me was uh, when you kind of investigated the actual acceptance of uh, of queer people in megachurches. Because having... <laughs> Having sung in a megachurch, and, and you know, I mentioned this before we we started recording the podcast, but I I was a part of a megachurch in New York, and I left because of the I, I'm trying to figure out the right way to word this, but it, the hidden theology, you mm-hmm. know, um, in, in regards to the LGBTQ community, and. Mm-hmm. I I just couldn't be a part of that. And I think it's a common thing because I think with mega churches, they know how to get you there. They know how to um, have production value, which is a whole nother podcast we could talk about. <laughs> but, you know, they, have, they have the production value. They're, they're brilliant with their marketing and they really are very careful with their words in, in how they, they get people to be a part of their communities. Mm-hmm. So- when you were doing that episode, like what was your biggest takeaway that you realized when it comes to mega churches in terms of the LGBTQ community? A big takeaway for me, and then I have a follow-up question for you because I'm so interested in your experience. A big takeaway is how legitimized these churches became and how, you know, quote unquote, cool Christianity became, and you can trace this back, like Vanity Mm -hmm. Fair was running articles about these mega churches, Mm -hmm. how they rebranded, but the theology remained regressive. There was this public rebrand that's very effective. And part of how that became legitimized was through celebrity and high profile attendees. Mm. So when I hear your story, it's very moving for me because a lot of times you'll hear people that will go there, that that this theology doesn't affect them because Mm -hmm. that's not their, that's not who they are. And so that you'll hear it a lot. Well, I'm going to change them from the inside. I don't know if, I don't think that's possible. I haven't seen it yet. So when I hear your story about you chose to leave, I wonder, did you wrestle with that decision? Like maybe I could change from the inside. Maybe I could persuade them to adopt a more progressive theology. Like when did you reach that point of like, no, I got to leave. I can't stay here. That's a great question. You know, I remember sitting, cause I was an assistant worship leader and I remember sitting in the office with the main worship leader at the church. And uh, I think one, uh, there was a conversation that had happened about not allowing um, a person that was openly gay to be, to serve, right? And I remember sitting in the office and saying, well, like, why can't he serve? And 
he, he, he was like, well, you know, I, I, he's like, I do think God has, you know, a plan for, um, you know, him, you know, whatever. And I was like, well, why isn't it to serve? Like, what's wrong? Well, he's like, well, you know, he, he, he didn't want to say it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Oh my gosh. And, yeah. And, and he was like, I remember very distinctly, he's like, God has a plan, you know, for gay people. And I was like, well, why is being gay wrong? And he just gave me this look like, what? Like, why would you ask me that? And I never got an answer. To this day, I still have not gotten an answer. I was like, why is being gay wrong? And he was, and then he just kept saying, God, I believe God has a plan, you know, for, for, for gay people. And I, I, you asking me that it's like, should I have stayed? Maybe, but I felt kind of helpless and we could go into a whole nother conversation of like me being a woman of color and trying to you know argue with Mm -hmm. these these white men like it just it wasn't worth the energy at the time so I just made the commitment that I wanted to try to find a community that that didn't follow those practices and that's just what I ended up doing but I think that's I honestly think when people ask me for advice because sometimes I'll get dms from people at prominent megachurches in Los Angeles that have maybe come upon an episode of state of grace they're like Mm -hmm. what can I do and I'm like you gotta leave I don't Mm -hmm. know how else to tell you that because you need to show that 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 they can no longer ignore this conversation, this problem, mm-hmm. that the, the gaslighting, all of that stuff, the non-answers, it's not going to fly anymore. Yeah. And yeah. there's no excuse to be ignorant to that. There's too right. much information. Right. And so I think that making a decision to leave is really powerful mm-hmm. because it really, it kind of shows like, I, I'm going to practice what I preach. I believe that queer people are worthy and just as valuable and loved in the eyes of God. So I can't stay here. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can't stay somewhere that doesn't agree with that right. emphatically. Yeah. I, you know, you know, during, um, something that kind of like grinded my gears is that there were a lot of prominent churches during black lives matter over the summer that loved basically being like, we're going to say black lives matter. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Um, and, and I think that that is a, a fruitful step. Okay. But I, I'm like, let's talk about black trans lives. Let's talk about the lives of black trans women in this country. Why aren't let's, why won't you say that on stage and, ex- and receive your applause? Right. Right. You know? And right. so I'm, it's, it's sort of, it's the, when we, we need to talk about like intersectionality within churches that now have seen that it's somehow profitable to talk about social justice in certain ways, yeah. but they're still picking and choosing the social justice that, that, that they've sort of workshopped is uh socially acceptable at this right. time and right. it's like i'm i'm over that yeah and, I, and the thing also with churches it, it is it's easy to talk about anything it's easy to post a black square it's easy to just make a statement but if there's no action behind it it absolutely means nothing to me mm-hmm. or to anybody really because yeah. churches should be leading all of these movements because i will stand by the statement that jesus was the original social justice warrior mm-hmm. and it's crazy it's crazy to me and i'm gonna be doing another episode on um uh, christianity and politics with a very good pastor friend of mine but it is can't wait for that one yeah (laughs) i'm really excited excited. but it's so crazy to me that and confusing i guess for lack of a better word but that for example political party that is quite literally to me the antithesis of what jesus stood for has tethered themselves to to his to him and that is part of the mm-hmm. identity and it makes no sense to me and i'm, I'm actually curious uh, just you know you having done your series and even been in the south quite a bit like why do you think that is <laughs> you know I, I think it 
I think it's absolutely intentional. And we know that there were meetings specifically in the 1970s and 80s within the GOP party to find non-negotiable issues. And two of the issues that they circled in on were their words, homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I just, that's like the funniest word to me, <laughs> like homosexuality and like the homosexual lifestyle. Right, right. It's like you kind of played yourself whenever you enter that into the lexicon of a conversation. Anyway, yeah. so that and then abortion. So these were two issues that prior to this were not hot button issues mm-hmm. within Christian communities, but they needed to harness that voting block, which yeah. we now understand to be the Bible Belt, which is abs- like one of the most significant voting blocks for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And they they played it incredibly well, and the messaging has been comprehensive. And, and it's something that I get frustrated with on the Democratic side, that they have never sort of, they've never really addressed that yeah um specifically like you know you know what i mean because there's so many people who vote blue wherever you are on the political spectrum i wouldn't describe myself personally as a democrat i'm pretty like radical in my politics but um i vote blue Mm -hmm. and i am a christian and my faith is very important to me Mm -hmm. and my faith informs me um to be pro-choice and there i have um a I have a statistical basis for that because we have to look at the people who are seeking abortion. Most of those people are women of color who already have a child at home, who have basically been shut out by the system that we built this entire country on. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at who abortion, like who is seeking abort- abortion care and like why. Um, and then also, I think when you look, if you want to talk Bible, let's talk about Bible and let's talk about how Mary consented to the pregnancy before the angel left her so if you want to take it to the bible let's take it to the fact that mary was not carrying that baby in her until she said let it be with me and the angel departed and so it's it's basically like if you want to play that then like we can play that but let's also look at who who needs this care in our country yeah and that's how i vote yeah do you think it's possible to separate your personal beliefs with voting because for me i am personally Mm pro-life if i I were to get pregnant at any point in my life i would never choose to have an abortion but that is my own personal choice Mm -hmm. but i wouldn't want anybody to take that choice away from me and i vote pro-choice because it is none of my business what somebody else wants to do so i really wish they're not saying that i'm perfect but i wish more (laughs) people were able to separate that so do you think that that is possible Well, I think just from you as an example alone, I think it's absolutely possible because, I mean, I mean, there you go. I think there are a lot of people who have been, I think, misguided in that if you are pro-life, that you need to therefore control the lives of other people Mm. who believe differently. Mm. And the weird thing about that is that so many conservatives believe in, you know, small government, in like no government involvement, but yet here you are petitioning and picketing for a large, far-reaching decision from the government to come into the lives of strangers, people you don't know. I'm, I actually really, if someone, you know, is pregnant and they have a really difficult decision up ahead of them, I think it's absolutely okay to counsel your spiritual advisor, your guide, to talk to a doctor, your healthcare provider, Mm -hmm. your friends, your families, to weigh your options and to come to a decision that is best for you. I'm not like, 
I, there's this, I think there is this misconception that because I am pro-choice that I am therefore like pro-abortions, like, which is, and I also want to destigmatize people who have had abortions. Right. I think that this is an issue, especially for me, because of like me and my own gender. I like really never want to be pregnant. So I really have to just like, I really, the dysphoria would be insane. Like I don't want it in my life. Um, <laughs> So I have to just give credence to people who are experts in this area yeah. who do this work mm-hmm. and, and, and not be so self-righteous with whatever, you know, whatever I believe, because it's just not, it is not my, my issue, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I wish that on the right, we would see that of like, mm-hmm. I am not an expert in reproductive health. I'm not, I don't right. know who this affects. I don't know how people go about this. I, I, I've never been in, inside a Planned Parenthood before, mm-hmm. which I had not been until we filmed the episode of State of Grace. So just to sort of get off your high horse a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much do you think churches in general have kind of misinterpreted what their mandate is supposed to be? Because I've always viewed churches as supposed to be a community of loving people that just kind of help guide you and uplift you. And I mean, honestly, I feel like we as a people have made religion and and beliefs way more complicated than it needs to be. You know, Mm -hmm. for me, for me, my beliefs are very, very simple. Like Jesus preached about love. And I think it honestly is that easy. God is love. Jesus is love. Let's just love one another. I personally do not want the, um, responsibility of having to make decisions for other people because I already have to deal with my own life. So just when it comes to the church as a whole, like how much do you think they, they've just kind of missed the mark on what they're supposed to be doing? I, I mean, I, I think we've missed the mark so completely in so many areas when we, we need, think about all the conversations we have about uh, sexuality, orientation, gender, abortion, issues that you really have to like, pick between interpret and translate to find, you know, to come to a concrete message that was preached in the Bible, all this stuff, you know, did not exist, was not in the realm of what people were talking about. However, it's really clear when it talks about caring for the least among us, when we talk about the poor, when it talks about love, there's no stuttering from Jesus. You know, there's no if, ands, or buts in there. And we have done a great job as Christians to insert that, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and that, and I think that was a huge reason why I've been able to build this foundation in, in faith, despite, you know, coming to the U S and being pretty rocked for a while because of how Christians were treating me as a queer person and just all the, the, the gaslighting and then eventually, you know, the ultimate rejection for me. And it's because none of that was godly. None of right. it is Christ-like. Right. And once right. you kind of, and once I was able to sort of reconcile that, then I can, then I can really have this holistic deconstructed faith that I, that I love, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that is so comforting mm-hmm. to me, but it is absent. I think, you know, when we're talking about, when we're talking about marriage, okay, you want to talk about biblical marriage? Let's go there, my friends. Right. And you know, it, that's, that's what I think is so interesting that people don't want to admit how antiquated the Bible is, like, and how full of contradictions the Mm -hmm. Bible is. And I think, you know, being a Christian in general is actually a really complicated lifestyle, trying to navigate it. Um, But I mean, just when it comes to specifically the LGBTQ community, when it comes to being a Christian and the Christian community, like, 
how and why, and I mean, and even when, do you mm-hmm. think we strayed away from the simple message that we are all made in God's image? Oh, that is such a good question. I mean, I think something I've actually been pouring over recently in my spare time in quarantine is going back over queer history, um, specifically in the United States. And so much of it is misreported. They're antiquated terms. It's re- it feels like um, our history was just sort of hidden from us for so mm-hmm. long. But, you know, the term homosexual panic came into, was introduced into the English language um, by a psychiatrist in 1920. Um, so, Prior to that, of course, there was sort of referring to people who were queer as unnatural, mm-hmm. which is interesting because my natural inclination is towards my wife. Like that's not right. it's, it's not, not a choice. That's yeah, yeah, I would say yeah. I would yeah. tell you I dated a guy once, and boy, was that unnatural. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you, it was not a natural thing for either party. Uh, <laughs> but so I, I think that um, when when we, you have to look at like the history of Christianity, how it came over into this country and how, you know, there were two spirit, um, there, there was the idea of being two spirit in indigenous populations yeah, that yeah. were already here. And mm-hmm. so we saw like gender variants as something very beautiful. And then the colonizers came over with this very puritanical understanding of Christianity. And it just sort of festered and festered and eroded um, into something that has become by the 20th century, very restrictive, mm. regressive, and um, honestly, I think unnatural in many ways yeah. um, because of the the gender roles that sort of that were put upon uh, men and women as informed by the Bible and yeah. moreover by the teachers interpreting the Bible at that time. So I think it was like the 20th century is when things seem to have gotten really codified. It's when, you know, um, sodomy laws entered in like the 1600s, 1700s, but they weren't really exercised um, and prosecuted um, very significantly until like the late 1900s, early 20th century, you start seeing masquerading laws. So that's like, I would be arrested for wearing men's clothing, which is stupid because it's so comfortable. But like, I would be, <laughs> I would be very much- but it is more expensive. <laughs> no, sometimes that's true. Um, these pants, I'm telling you. Um, so I think that it was around like the 20th century when things started getting codified into law. Yeah, And yeah. that is a major turning point because then if the legal system is saying that a queer person is outside of the law, then in 1946, we see the word homosexual enter the Christian Bible, an English translation of the Christian Bible. So you're seeing that entrenchment just sort of right. seep down. Right. Not only are they outside of the law, but we are now also immoral. Mm. Because that's what that translation was talking about, sexual immorality. Yeah. Okay, so now we're immoral. And I yeah. think that that just, uh, you know, then you, people sort of doubled down in the 1950s, the nuclear family. <laughs> yeah, and it all just sort of spiraled from there yeah. until... You know, Stonewall happened in 1969, but there were riots well that that predate that. But Stonewall was certainly this like boiling point of queer people being like, we will be counted. You know, we deserve this seat at the table. And if you are not going to give it to us, then we're going to burn down this house. Yeah, right. So do you think that there is this struggle with 
because I mean, I have a lot of friends that have walked away from the church, but still have a relationship with God. And if they didn't have their own personal relationship with God, they'd probably be atheists that are specifically mm-hmm. identify with the queer community. But do you feel like this picture is kind of painted that you have to choose between either having faith and being authentic to who you are? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think for a time, I probably would have felt that way, that you know, I, I was not especially religious when I was, when I came to the U.S. and when I was sort of coming out and exploring my sexuality, because it just always felt like it was in conflict and I didn't want to have the conversation. And then it was actually a big thing for coming out as gay was actually a lot easier than coming out as like a genderqueer non-conforming person. I kind of toyed with for many, like it took years to get my hair to where I like it. I know right now it's a mullet, but I like it. Yeah, I love um, it. <laughs> so because I was really struggling with like presenting, I didn't want to look too gay. I didn't want to scare people. I was nervous about the implications of presenting as genderqueer and all that stuff. But actually what happened when I started to like be, I've always known that I was this way, like ever since I was a kid, like Mm -hmm. just in photos of me when I was really young, it's actually very incredible and beautiful how kids can recognize their nature. Um, when they're so little, I just always stole my brother's clothing. It was like the greatest joy ever when my mom would let me order from the men's land catalog, (laughs) like for boys. Um, and once I started presenting authentically was the, was this turning point for me and my faith, mm. because it, it suddenly it's like everything aligned. It was like turning a dial and everything clicked into place for the first time. Yeah. And it was the first time that I could pray without this nagging voice in the back of my head that there was, that I wasn't quite right. Or that there was something wrong with me. It was like, once I really allowed myself to be this person that God created, then I, then I, I was able to read my Bible with fresh eyes, mm. you know, and, and start that process of, of deconstructing and understanding, you know, the, the history of um, colonization and Christianity and how that all sort of plays into where we are today, but that God is absolute love. Yeah. And I, I wasn't open to that type of a history lesson until I was able to read the Bible truthfully. Mm. And I can't read the Bible truthfully if I'm lying to the world. Right. So once I was starting to live as myself, then I was like, whoa, like, let's dive in. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I understand the, the duality and I have found a, a way to make this marriage um, because it's the only way I under, like, it's the only way I actually feel peace. Yeah. Yeah. How have you, because that was my next question. How have you managed to find a healthy intersection for both of your identities of being queer and being a Christian, because I know it is a struggle for a lot of people, but you seem to have figured out this way to meld it into a really beautiful place for yourself. So for anybody that is listening and maybe struggling with this, maybe has walked away from the church because of that, how have you managed to just make this who you are and and a part of your life? Yeah, I I think my biggest pieces of advice are um, research, finding biblical scholars on queer theology was huge for me. It just cracked everything wide open. And I recommend as a starting point, the the teachings of Matthew Vines. He has a book called God and the Gay Christian. And that was one of the first things I read. And that kind of delves into translations. So you, if you're gay or queer in any variety, you you know the six verses I'm talking about. Like they've been thrown at you. I'm aware of them. People sometimes post yes, them yes. to me on Instagram. 
Instagram. Like that's I've never the other thing. These- Weaponizing the Bible is pisses me off. So oh my gosh! Much. But that's again another conversation. But continue, oh. continue. <laughs> So basically, so I would say, you know, starting looking at um, biblically sound queer theology, if if you are anything like me, you will be convinced that it doesn't exist. Because again, the first videos that I looked up were um, Jackie Hillary's anti-gay testimony. And so I was like, oh, this is the only type of uh, scholarship that exists. It's not true. Just do some, do some digging. Matthew Vines is great. Um, You know, Kevin Garcia on Twitter. It's a friend of mine. Um, I'm trying, there's so many people i wish i could like send over now i'm blanking but i wish there's what's like, <laughs> no. god is gray on youtube has some great videos if youtube is your preferred medium and so first i think building that foundation of what does the bible really say yeah. about a, being queer a queer person so understanding that and then I, I think there's a lot of freedom in you know you can deconstruct your faith and it doesn't need to be rebuilt to anything you know if it doesn't need to be you don't need to find necessarily a a structural church. I mean, obviously none of us are leaving our house anyway, but if that's not where you feel called, you know, maybe you can just find yourself on, uh, in prayerful circles on Twitter, or you can be in like, in, you know, group zooms and whatnot. Like it doesn't necessarily need to look like what you understood faith to be before you now have the freedom to build your own faith. If that is a Bible study, that is you alone once a week, um, or if that is, you know, Lizzie and I found this church, Middle Church, I don't know if you're familiar, but they had incredible online offerings of services over um, the pandemic. And we've just been tuning in as though it's like our church. Awesome. Um, we have, we also have a church in Los Angeles, but it's nice to find like other communities and yeah, I, that, that's another thing is like you can deconstruct and you don't need to reconstruct in any type of way. Mm-hmm. You know, you can change the name that you call God. I think we can agree that God it, it exists beyond gender. And so if it's comforting for you to use she, her pronouns like God, our mother, you know, then that that's beautiful. And, and find your own personal relationship with God as not dictated by any sort of prior toxic doctrine, because what fruit has that bore us so far? Right, right. I love your advice. I think that's great. And I, I, I love the healthy place that you're in. It's, it's really, really refreshing to hear. And I, I love talking to you again, Grace and I could talk about oh my so God. many things. We were just chatting even before we started recording, but thank you so much for joining me. And please let my listeners know where they can find you, where they can watch state of grace. You're also a musician. You have music. So plug anything you want so they can follow you and keep up with what you're doing. Well, I am so happy to have joined you for this episode. I'm really honored that it's like the the new season for me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> this space is huge. I, I hope that you understand that the space that you're creating is so important and needed. And I'm just grateful for people like you because finding this podcast would have changed my life when I was growing up. And so it's significant. I know okay. that it's, you know, it's just you and I were friends. We're like talking and chatting, but it's, it is significant. So I really appreciate of you and inviting me on. Um, okay. So my name is Grace Baldridge. You can find me uh, under at Grace Baldridge on Twitter, on Instagram. And I'm on TikTok as well. My wife and I have a TikTok. I love uh, it. So there you can find, find us there too. And my artist name is my middle name, which is Semler. And I have an EP that 
I'm trying to finish up by tomorrow night, so hopefully that'll be out like at the end of January. <laughs> I don't know, wish me luck. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And to the listeners, make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Make sure you follow We Need to Talk on Instagram and Facebook at We Need to Talk the Podcast. And if you're interested in being a patron, make sure you go to patreon.com slash Melinda Hale. Thanks again for listening. Bye.